Hello friends, welcome back to the AirPod, your one-stop shop for all the latest goings on with the British Royal Family. I'm your host, Leonid Scobie, joined by the lovely ABC News foreign correspondent Maggie Rooley. How are you doing? Hey, Omid. Can you believe that our podcast last week we were dressed up in Halloween costumes? It feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs> As I sit here in the country's second nationwide lockdown, it's a sobering reminder of a, exactly. a world that we once lived in. <laughs> we'll be back to it someday, Omid. We'll eat, just eat lots uh, of candy in the meantime. <laughs> you are on the road, I understand. I am. Yes, right now I'm in Paris. We oui, we oui, okay. as they say. That's not too that's not Bonjour. too shabby. Um, but this is this has not been the first this is not your first stop. You've actually been on quite a journey since I last saw you. you know, we, yes, we have been. We were um, in Nice and then Paris and then Vienna and then back to Paris. You know, unfortunately um, covering a lot of terror attacks recently and also new lockdowns across Europe. So it has been quite a busy week on top of the U.S. election. I have to say that um, what's been interesting about traveling around Europe this week is that you know everyone is is nervous and stressed about the next lockdown, which is ha- you know are happening right now all over the continent. Um, they're they're worried and fearful. A lot of uh, terror alert levels are getting risen across the continent as well. And then on top of that, there's so much interest in the U.S. election that. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. It has been a long week. I keep seeing jokes where it's like, oh, it's like Tuesdays lasted for five days and that's how it feels right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I feel like I have uh, had my eyes glued to the same coverage since how many Mm -hmm. evenings ago it was now. Um, Absolutely gripping stuff, Um, but a time of huge anxiety for a nation that no Mm -hmm. doubt wants to see this come to a conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it's not just the nation either. I think that's what's so impactful is uh, the world is really watching what's happening right now. A- everyone wants to know uh, what's going on. I, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, um, I got my hair cut in Vienna, fun fact. It's one of the few places that while they're in lockdown, <laughs> let their hair salon stay open. So I took advantage, Omid, that I did. I got a nice trim before I head back to the UK where we're in lockdown right now, as you mentioned. And um, I heard the woman next to me, she was speaking in German, so I didn't know what she was saying, but she said the word Florida. They were talking about Florida and the counts that had just come in. And I mean, it's it's shocking, it's unbelievable that uh, everywhere, everywhere in the world is really uh, watching and wanting to see what happens. Uh, a lot of these in the weeds moments as well, really in-depth things like electoral college votes and you know different states and the timing of different counties being reported. I mean, I'm shocked that Americans are talking about this, let alone you know, people in Austria and people in Paris. It's, it's, it's really incredible. Well, it's, some, you know, it's a decision that will ultimately affect mm-hmm. the entire world. Uh, I think often where America leads and the world sort of follows, uh, you know, we have to, you know, if we look back at even the first man on the moon or whatever it Mm. was, you know, America is often first. And, you know, I think for many countries, what happens after a presidential election is just as concerning or interesting Mm. um, to those outside of the US as it is in. But what's been very interesting about this election, it was the first time I can think of that we've had a member of the British royal family taking part (laughs) in the vote. 
Uh, the Duchess of Sussex uh, spokesman confirms uh, sent or voted in the election this year. Mm. Um, it was one of the reasons that she told Gloria Steinem that she'd actually returned to the US for. Now, Megan, of course, has been very vocal about the importance mm. of voting and being involved in the election and using your vote as your voice to be heard at a very important time, a critical moment in time for America. Um, now, of course, we don't know who she voted for. I would argue that the clues have probably been there along the way. Um, but it is a very interesting piece of news, I think, to even hear of a member of the royal family voting in the US election. Yeah, it's sort of funny uh, when this, you know, was kind of first announced and written about um, all of a sudden it struck me what a big deal that really is. I, I hadn't put it together that Megan voting in my mind. She I was like, oh, she's an American. Of course, she's going to vote in the U.S. election. Big whoop. Um, but then when you read the headline, you know, British royal voting in U.S. election, it, it also really drove it home for me. Um, what an incredible, you know, marriage this is, an alliance this could be, and the fact that you know you do have an American and and a British man who are now married and can become citizens of each other's countries, and you know. Megan voted this year, but they can actually vote in each other's elections. I mean, it, it, it is pretty incredible. Mm. I think what's interesting about this is we obviously, of course, heard Megan talking about being an, uh, an active member of society and mm. taking part in the democratic process. What was interesting was a spokesperson for Megan said to me and to others this week that Megan's political activism won't end after the US mm. election. And this is something that she's going to really continue to be involved in over the months and uh, I'm sure years ahead. Now, what will be very interesting will be how that work changes depending on the outcome of the mm. election. I would imagine there's a scenario in which she would perhaps, perhaps be more involved Mm. Um, than than another, but I think it, that it is very interesting. Obviously, a lot of speculation about how Meghan voted and who she voted for. I heard from a source that she sent in her ballot, mm. uh, but no more details than that. And mm. that makes sense. I would imagine it would be quite the spectacle if she showed That's up. That's true. Although I would have loved very... to have seen that. <laughs> <laughs> there were some long lines. I have yeah. the utmost admiration to the people of the US for sticking it out in some, I think some people queue for five or six hours in some states, which is just incredible. It really is, although I saw those lines, it also made me question, does it have to be that way? I mean, I feel like, hmm. I hope that people see that as a country and think, okay, we need to make um, voting uh, much more accessible and, and open. You know, we always talk about being this land of the free, land of democracy, and that should mean that people can cast a vote. And, you know, waiting five hours, I'm sure, deters a lot of, of good Americans from casting a vote. And so I hope that seeing these images makes us think how we do it, you know, for midterms and also for the next presidential election. But you know, Oman, I did have a question for you. Oh, sorry. Um, I did have a question for you about Megan. So you mentioned that uh, she says she's gonna stay, or a spokesperson for her says she's gonna stay very politically active. But I know that, you know, she, she and, and Harry were both somewhat criticized by, you know, um, certain media outlets and certain people about getting too political and royals, you know, should never be political or should never um, support voting for one person or one party in an election. So how can Meghan, you know, practice political activism but still sort of, uh, do it appropriately in the name of a royal? I mean, is that possible to do both? I mean, I would say that the 
the example that both Harry and Meghan have already given us in recent months is kind mm -hmm. of where the line, I would say, is. You know, members of the royal family, as you say, have to and are always politically neutral. And there are many reasons for that. I think that, you know, when we look back at, say, the Queen, when she gave that speech to the nation and to the Commonwealth at the start of our first lockdown here, it brought together people of the country in a way that I think if you represented a particular party or political group would have been a lot difficult, a lot more difficult. That political neutrality, I think, really comes into handy when it comes in, mm. ha uh, comes in useful uh, as a leading uh, monarch. What I would say is that Harry and Meghan, I think, have really found this ability to communicate with particularly young people of America and just it's rather than encouraging them to get involved in politics I think it's this conversation that we often hear from them about using their voices for the better you know this is a couple that like to help encourage youth across the world to find their own platform and speak up for the things that mean the most to them and when we look at the elections, that's exactly what they've encouraged people to do, which is simply to use their vote for the change or for the world that they want to live in. And that's really where the messaging has ended. So I think that they really have really found mm. this place already. I think Harry, as we've seen, has played a much smaller role in this. But, you know, Meghan is, was an American long before she was a royal and I think to expect her to say nothing would be completely inappropriate and despite all of the criticism that we've seen in sections of the press I haven't heard one negative word coming from within the royal mm. households themselves so I think sometimes that criticism or the controversy that we see written about is often very different to what is actually felt oh that's really scenes. interesting I never even thought of that that you know the, the way the palace uh, views what they're doing could be totally different, of course, than what, you know, uh, certain tabloids or media outlets are reporting. I think we've gotten so used to sometimes linking the two together, but uh, it's, it's curious and interesting that you haven't really heard rumblings from the palace. Yeah, you know, I think we often see the, the usual phrase of yeah, royal outrage exactly. or royal <laughs> controversy or palace fears or whatever it is uh, that the tabloids will use and that's often not the case I think a lot of it is just gr great for a headline mm -hmm. it makes you want to click uh, but the information itself isn't always so accurate uh, however one thing that was very mm -hmm. accurate this week was a report in the sun uh, earlier this week that Prince William was treated by doctors at his Anne Mahal home in Norfolk after a COVID-19 diagnosis six months ago. Um, this this shocked me. Were you? Did you know any of this? Were you shocked? I was I, I was personally surprised by this. I know there are some that had mm. said that they had heard uh, that this diagnosis was made mm. much earlier in the year and that they uh, had either been sort of pushed away from covering it or not given the confirmation mm. needed to run such a story. But this was news to me. Um, it was in March, of course, that we heard that Prince Charles had COVID-19, but then there have been no other members of the royal family that came forward since to say they're tested positive. We know that Sophie, the Countess of Wessex, just a month ago went into a brief period of isolation, having come into contact with someone with coronavirus. But again, 
the palace were very transparent about this. So I think this is where the surprise was that Prince William, our future king, had kept quiet this diagnosis at a time when arguably it probably would have had great impact on a whole nation of mm. young people who at the time, and almost myself I would include in that, weren't quite so afraid of the coronavirus. This was at a time when many people were um, coming down with the virus or even many deaths were sort of tallying up, but we were really focused on the impact that it was having on an older community. I think at the time where we saw um, coronavirus really having a detrimental impact on an older community, whether it's through diagnoses or through even the death, though the numbers of deaths that were sort of racking up at the time, young people weren't really part of that sort of group that was sort of fearful of the coronavirus. And I think that hearing someone like Prince William had gone through it probably could have had a really positive impact at the time. But of course, there are many reasons behind him not uh, putting that information out there. Um, I think at the time it was said that, or sources told the Sun newspaper, who were the original publication to break the news, that he was still determined to fulfil his engagements and he wanted to sort of keep calm, carry on, that sort of typical royal approach. Um, he, of course, seemed very fit and healthy in a lot of the engagements that, you, you know, you and I were covering at the time, most of which were done via Zoom, but sources told the newspaper that he was hit pretty hard by the virus, even saying that at one point he was struggling to breathe. Yeah, I think that's part of what is so interesting about this story is that, you know, obviously it's a health issue and, and, and that is sensitive and people can make their own decisions about, you know, reporting the status of their health. But also, you know, he is future king someday and to know that both, you know, the two next in line for the throne had coronavirus. Um, is certainly uh, something that would spark a concern. Uh, but it's also, you know, as you say, a, a, an interesting question of transparency from the palace. And I could see people easily, you know, uh, there's the threat that people could now question things going forward. You know, if this was not revealed, what else could maybe not be revealed? And, and so it's a delicate balance between, you know, the right to protect privacy of your, your medical history and also, you know, wanting to make sure that people trust in, in your leadership and trust in your guidance. Absolutely. There was a really interesting piece of commentary in the Washington Post this week uh, where they said that the big argument for disclosing Prince William's illness was that in April, the UK had 48,000 COVID cases and 4,900 deaths. Now, there are more than 1 million cases and 46,000 deaths. And they mm. say that people might have taken the virus threat a little more seriously or differently had they have seen someone like Prince William uh, go through that. So it's been very interesting to hear the different opinions. And one journalist I wanted to catch up with to hear their take on this was Robert Jobson, uh, the royal commentator and biographer. Uh, he was particularly vocal about this of what he calls a palace cover-up. Um, now, whilst many have said that, you know, with his grandmother and his father not able to work, William continued for the sake of the monarchy. Prince William himself wouldn't have wanted to make a fuss, that's what sources say. Um, and so their argument is, why should we then make it a fuss? Um, but Robert, as you'll hear after the break, Maggie, had a very different side of the story to share. 
Well, thanks for joining me on the show, Robert. Um, it's been a while since you've joined us on the AirPod, but it's this is a particularly big story, and I think one that has really seen a mixture of views from royal correspondents and commentators, um, who some surprised by uh, this revelation, some not so surprised, including yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the only issue I've got, I don't have a particular issue with members of the royal family not revealing their medical conditions. Of course, that's part and parcel uh, of the way we abide by the rules in the media now. But the, the, the bottom line here is there should not have been a denial once a um, legitimate question had been put to the palace. And this wasn't a floated question. Um, it came from on high, it came from a very high source. And I made sure that, that the Kensington Palace were aware of that. And they said, well, you know, we, we you, they get calls about impeccable sources every day. And this isn't impeccable. This is the case in point here. Well, that's a denial in any anybody's book. And then, of course, you, you have all the details of all the reasons why people shouldn't have to reveal their medical condition, which we fully understand. But the, if you, in any way, to put out a denial, then, of course, it le doesn't leave the position open for the media, i.e. The, the editor, to make a judgment um, on whether to run the story or not, based on his reliable is his feeling of the source and the source is very very high uh, and very very good so i was a little surprised by that i mean i've covered the rules for 30 years or so and i've not been misled in that way before so i was extremely disappointed not disappointed that william had decided to make it to keep his medical condition private but disappointed in the way that it was handled because you know as journalists you know i mean it's our job to reveal stories and it's not our job to worry about the um, unless we're at war, when we're embedded with the, the troops, it's not our job to, to uh, be part of a, a cover-up or a, a, a non-transparent um, world that we live in. So I, in my opinion, it was the wrong move. I understand that why William didn't want to cause panic. His father had announced that he had COVID. His, the Boris Johnson had, 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 had announced he got COVID and was in the hospital. But that's not really the point. The point here is you shouldn't mislead the media and, and when we've got a, a set of rules that they have to abide by, <laughs> the bottom line is you can't then put out effectively a denial because that means they can't make a judgment of their own. Mm. I think that's what really stood out to me about your commentary this week. As, as you say, this is, you know, everyone is entitled to keep certain aspects of their health private, should that be their desire. Um, but as you went on to say, it did show a poor judgment in sort of by not telling the truth. Now, one of your tweets, you spoke about asking or Kensington Palace being asked several times by the media whether Prince William had contracted the virus and uh, journalists were categorically told no. You then go on to call it a serious issue of trust. Well, well I, I believe that. I believe that, yeah. I mean, mm. I know for definite, I know exactly when I put the request in and, and the reason I put it in, in writing was because I had a feeling um, that this would come back. And it, this this had come from a very senior source. It wasn't actually, you know, um, only my source. It was a very, very senior source. Uh, uh, so we knew that it was not some flyer. Now, I understood afterwards that a number of other journalists had, uh, had contacted the palace about this, but I was not worried about them so much. What I was worried about is this, this saying that, you know, we get called every day about with impeccable sources, and they don't, they turn out to be anything but is fine. But don't then add as uh, you know as this is the case in this particular instance, because that means as as 
a newspaper, we can't possibly run, as a journalist, you can't possibly run that story because you're then going against a denial, a flat denial from the palace, which means you're in breach of the own the code of ethics that the journalists have put in place in, in themselves. You know, the, the media newspapers have put in place. So, you know, we couldn't possibly go against that. But what annoys me, in a way, is there is no code of practice for PRs. If the PR is being instructed by his um, principal to to be mendacious, I think that's about as strong as I'm going to go, then there should be some record, there should be some fallback, not just to sort of hide behind it. And I think many of the people on Twitter didn't understand what had gone on here. They were accusing me of being petulant and being a liar myself. None of these things are true. I mean, the fact is I wouldn't, I wouldn't have made any comment about it whatsoever. If someone wants to keep their medical condition private, that is fine. The Prince of Wales chose to give keep his medical, uh, make his medical condition public. But if he wanted, in this particular instance, I, I think in, a, a public figure um, shouldn't then mislead um, mm. the media and therefore the public, because you are not actually, you know, the problem here is, is a matter of trust going forward. I mean, what if there's another story uh, that you then put to them? You're pretty certain it's true. You're then told it's not true. What do you then do? Do you then stick by the code of ethics? Um, which is established by the press, or do you say, well, they've lied to me before? I don't I don't believe them. I mean, when I broke the story well, with Charles to marry Camilla, we never actually put that story to the palace because we you know, we had a feeling either it was going to leak or they were going to lie to us. So that's what I was going to ask, actually, is sort of moving forward. How do you think this uh, impacts the relationship between the press and Kensington Palace in this case? Um, is there work that needs to be done or is this something that you sort of move on from and, and that's that? Well, I think you just move on from it. I think that you have to establish, I mean, I had a phone call from the palace and they were saying to me that they didn't lie, but I've, I've got the emails. I said, would you like me to publish the emails? You know, the bottom line is they, they certainly were not, they didn't tell the truth. They misled me and they did it with consciously. Whether or not they want to sort of try to wriggle out of that, I don't think they can because I've seen the wording of the email. And, it, and even though it's for guidance, um, basically it was saying the story wasn't true and and then giving me a reason why we couldn't publish. That isn't the issue. The second part, the issue is, don't if you if you've got if you can't confirm, then say no comment. Don't mislead the media so that they're stymied by their own law of rules and regulations. Now, the Duke of Cambridge has obviously been really at the forefront of the royal family's efforts in highlighting the work being carried out by frontline workers and volunteers and charities throughout the pandemic. Do you think that this particular incident has had any sort of negative impact on that work that he's done? Is there something that uh, you think he might need to do moving forward? Would we possibly see him address this in some way? Well, the only thing that he's really probably done is make, make myself, a veteran royal journalist, doubt the veracity of what they're saying. You know, I'm not going to call him Billy Liar, but I mean, it's, it's along that line, isn't it? The bottom line, it, it was a story. I don't believe, and I haven't covered this story for so long, that any story will ever stay. Um, it, you know, all stories will come out eventually. So if you've got something to, that, is, um, that you're not being transparent about, eventually it will come out anyway. Uh, the truth will out, as it were. But in my opinion, guiding your own press team to say something isn't true and it not and it is true is not a sensible procedure for whatever reason. 
ultimately you'll be seen to be doing a cover-up. Has it impacted upon him? No, not really. I think that he's done a very good job and I wouldn't go against that. I think in terms of the way that he's presented himself and Catherine on their, um, uh, all through their, um, their, their, their various media platforms they've utilised, done very well. And there he was walking alongside the Queen with no mask and the Queen with no mask at a job quite recently where we were all told everyone had been tested and was fine. So obviously, um, he's doing a very, very good job, I think, in terms of presenting and keeping the royal family in the public eye and certainly in thanking the frontline workers. But ultimately, wouldn't it have been better if a young, for the actual whole story of the pandemic that if a young man like Prince William, and we are told he was not very well at all, had been affected by this, it might tell a few people who, who are you know in their mid-30s and who are out partying that it does impact upon the everybody, um, not just people that were older, like Prince uh, Charles and, um, and Boris Johnson. Public figures like Prince William uh, would have been caught up in it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Robert. Uh, you can check out his new biography, Prince Philip's Century, uh, later next year. I believe you're hard at work on it now. Thanks again, Robert. I think there'll always be this really interesting conversation about where the the line of sort of privacy is allowed to be with members of the royal family and this has been a particularly interesting conversation to have with many people that cover the beat um, but i think it seems at least for the moment that probably because of what everything else going on in the world uh, people have moved on somewhat from this story no, but it's a really good point, and I think what's interesting as well, hearing from someone like Jobson that has covered this beat for so long, it just reminds you to the the history of royal reporting and how something from, you know, an outsider um, may not seem as significant, but when you take into context the history behind it and the weight of that history in the royal family, why potentially it's a bigger deal than just, you know, uh, someone's personal background. It, it is interesting to remember that context. Mm. It's also been interesting, I think, to see... The differences in coverage, I, this particular story reminded me of when Harry and Meghan um, were very, mm. I guess, selective on what details they wanted to share around the na- uh, or around the birth of their son, Archie. And there was a lot of very almost vitriolic commentary mm. in certain sections about the couple withholding the name of the hospital. Uh, or where Meghan gave birth. Uh, I think one commentator said uh, Meghan and Harry were not playing the game <laughs> that members of the royal family should. Um, it was been, then been interesting to see some of the same commentators this time around talking about uh, William perhaps setting a new path for royals mm. when it comes to privacy. So I think sometimes moments like this can <laughs> highlight the, the uh, quote-unquote hypocrisy. I'm not accusing mm. anyone of anything. Uh, that does exist on on this beat. Uh, On to more positive news. Uh, The Prince of Wales reflected on his personal fashion sense during a discussion or a surprise discussion with editor-in-chief of British Vogue, Edward Eninfall. This was for their December issue. Uh, It was a focus on sustainable fashion and uh, he spoke about his uh, stopped clock style. Uh, That's his words. Um, And his fondness for mending his clothes. I actually loved this interview so much, Omid. Some of the gems that came out of this. I mean, I just love stopped clock style. What a way to put um, never throwing your clothes away, you know? 
Like, I, <laughs> that's the kind of phrasing we all need. Uh, but it is funny because he makes a good point. Like, you know, as we look towards way to be ways to be more sub, uh, sustainable in our lives, fashion is a a huge polluter in the environment and and really impacts the the uh, the environment and it leads to climate change and all these things that we know are terrible. And something that you know Charles has really um, stood up for and against his entire life. And so seeing him approach it, even in his lifestyle and the clothes that he wears, you know, it 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 really shows that he sort of. Um, Talks the wait, walks the walk. What's the saying? Omid, help me. He doesn't just talk walks the talk. The he walk, walks the walk. Right? Talks the talk. Is that a saying? Yes. That's a saying. Thank you. <laughs> That's the saying. <laughs> but it's not just well, him. Yeah, talking about climate change. He's really um, he's wearing old clothes to help us. Absolutely, but also behind a really interesting movement um, that I think we're seeing a lot more of in the fashion mm. world. Mm -hmm. This sort of focus on sustainability and ethical sourcing. Uh, Charles himself is actually getting into the fashion business. And of course, this interview had a purpose. It was about a year ago that we heard that Prince Charles was actually getting into the fashion business. It was announced, I think, around this time last year that he had teamed, or his foundation has teamed up with the Uke's Netta Porter Group on a collection of men's and women's wear that will debut very soon. It's called the Mo Modern Artisan Project, and it mm. brings together students and recent graduates from Italy and Scotland who have come together to design and produce 17 pieces of clothing um, that have a real focus on sustainability but also cultural history as well so it's sort of bringing together that sort of scotland and milan connection um if there is one i don't know that's quite a unique hybrid <laughs> I guess. maybe it's there maybe he'll make one <laughs> but this is you know all part of his long-standing commitment to as you say his environmental activism and all of the pieces in the collection are sustainably made. Their feature, mm. uh, I'm going to quote the press release here, natural and traceable fabrics, including wool, cashmere and silk. And profits on the line will go to the Prince's Foundation, uh, which in addition to more projects like this is going to support a variety of other initiatives, including restoration of historic buildings, educational mm. programs targeted to learners of all ages, on arts and craft skills and so on. So this is really interesting. I think it's one of the more interesting things we've seen him involved in, in, in sort of recent months. I think he seems quite unafraid to step outside of his box every now and then, uh, which makes following his work really interesting. Um, and of course, how often do we get to see Prince Charles in Vogue magazine? <laughs> okay, can we, can we just talk about the photo of him standing in the flowers? The photo is incredible. It's just it's Charles in all of his, you know, reused jacket glory standing amongst a field of flowers. And it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, what's interesting was that Charles has two favorite overcoats, just two. Oh. And he has worn them both for about two decades now. No, really? Oh, I, could, I actually stand corrected, Maggie. Four decades. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> wow. You know, it is a good message, though, and, and, I, and I do love this point that um, 
you know, we've seen the Royals sort of make it a point to try to rewear some of their favorite items. And it does make a big difference, you know, instead of going out and buying 17 new things to wear on a Friday night that is only going to maybe be thrown away. Uh, and the fast fashion cycle is just so hard uh, on the environment and, and, and really on the world. And so uh, to, to see the fact that, all right, the future king can, you know, apparently wear the same jacket for four decades. All right, I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I can make it four decades, but it does inspire me to try to at least to rewear some things <laughs> more often than maybe I do. Absolutely. Well, one interesting thing that came out in this interview was that he spoke about the high standards that he's overseen for companies or fashion companies mm -hmm. to receive the ultra-coveted royal warrant from him. You may have seen that. It's a sort of little crest that mm. brands can proudly wear. Um, it's part of an ongoing trading agreement with the royal households. And it, it includes a number of really interesting designers and fashion designers, which includes Burberry, Hunter. You're probably familiar with the Wellington boots. Mm -hmm. um, Fulton that do the umbrellas, uh, the Queen's favourite kind of umbrella. Pringle, uh, Lorna of London, other brands like these. You would have seen many members of the, of the royal family wearing them over the years. But one thing Charles has changed is that now to have and keep your warrant, you must prove that you, moving forward, you are sort of meeting environmental requirements, uh, such as sustainability and supply chains and so on. So he's really making a big change across the fashion industry. Very interesting. And what's cool about this one, too, is that it's actually so tangible. Like you say, to have the seal, you actually have to take these steps. It's not just something that is being talked about. It's a, it's very much a, a real, tangible thing that we're going to be able to see in the real world that hopefully makes a difference. Well, Camilla followed suit after this interview came out, wearing um, a favourite green overcoat to oh. Westminster Abbey on November the 4th uh, to attend the Field of Remembrance at uh, Westminster Abbey. This is sort of kicking off a series of Remembrance Week services for the royal family. And, you know, what was interesting about this particular engagement was it's one that we've usually seen Prince Harry take on. In fact, mm. for the last however many years, this was Prince Harry's gig. Um, you will often see the photos or remember the photos of Harry uh, standing in the sort of field of bright red poppies at the Abbey. And it was interesting, I think, to see some of the work that the Duke of Sussex had been doing now handed over to other members of the royal family. And mm. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of this and may have seen a lot more of this already have we have not been dealing with various lockdowns and restrictions. Yeah, that is really interesting. You forget just uh, what a monumental shift this has been for the royal family because, well, I mean, so much else has been going on in the world and it also has made it more difficult for Harry and Meghan to come back to the UK. Initially, they were supposed to be back quite frequently, but clearly, you know, now it's difficult for, for everyone to travel, royals included. And so all of the, the separation that, you know, may not have seemed so extreme, maybe Harry could have come back for this ceremony even, is just is no longer possible. And so the, mm. the, the weight of um, lockdowns and of travel restrictions, uh, it's interesting to see how it's weighing on the royal family as well. And for those listening, I'm sure many of you are aware of the significance of the poppy here in the UK, but they are traditionally worn and uh, sort of put on display as well. You'll see the wreaths often at memorials um, across the country, usually a couple of weeks leading up to uh, Remembrance Sunday, which is this Sunday, and that's uh, paying tribute to 
all of those who've made sacrifices in mm. world wars and other conflicts. And Camilla herself is a patron of the poppy factory that they make. And they make the commemorative poppies mm. for the Royal British Legion. Uh, last week, you'll remember us talking about the Cambridges baking poppy cupcakes at their Animal Hall home yeah. with the kids. Um, I have not... Uh, managed to get hold of one myself yet, Maggie. I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah. They didn't bring one to you even after we talked about it last week. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, sadly, sadly oh, not. Um, let's have a word with George. <laughs> well, funny you mention George. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the Prince has made headlines this week for, I guess, for something I was not expecting, Maggie. If you are Ooh, a follower sure. of the Royal Beats, uh, you'll be familiar with Gary Janetti. Uh, one of the men behind the Family Guy animated series. Uh, but his Instagram account has often been home to some appropriate and inappropriate yes. jokes about members of the royal family. And I know that there have been uh, many people even working within the royal households that follow his accounts um, uh, who enjoy his sense of humour. But now it's taking centre stage on a new HBO Max animated series called The Prince. You flagged uh, this for me, it's incredible. <laughs> I had not seen this post yet and it's it's uh, it's something to go watch. <laughs> it, it, it's a satirical animated series uh, starring Prince George or the character, I'd say a fictional character of Prince George as a sassy commentator on the rest <laughs> of the royal's exploits. <laughs> I don't really know uh, what to say this... in response to that, if I'm honest. I feel like anything I say is only going to get us in trouble. <laughs> well, I'll play a little clip and that can avoid both of us Good. getting into trouble. Perfect. Hey guys, it's me again, Prince George, getting ready for a Halloween party downstairs. Rapid testing. Charlotte Louis and I are going as the three little pigs. So cute, right? What? I'm making a video. Hi, George. Ready? What the hell, Charlotte? What are you wearing? I changed my mind. Pigs are kind of gross. Yeah, I know they're gross, but it's cute when it's the three of us. Ugh, so now we're going as Dorothy and two random pigs? That's not anything. Now, an official description for the show says that this is going to be Prince George's story told from his own point of view as he learns what it means to be a modern day heir. I don't know what to expect from this. And quite <laughs> honestly, Maggie, I'm not quite sure how something like this is even allowed. I would, I would have thought that, obviously I don't know the legalities behind something like this, that surely you would need the permission of the person that you are making fun of, or at least uh, turning into a character on your show, um, but obviously not. Yeah, you know, I think there must be laws around satire, and I know based on, at least in America, based even on what state you're in, uh, the, the laws can vary. It's part of the reason why um, SNL, Saturday Night Live, is based in New York City, because New York sort of has different laws than even California. So I'm curious exactly what uh, they're being protected under, but I'm also very curious to see what the show is, because I have a feeling it's going to be pretty hysterical. And we'll be laughing with the royal family, not at them, obviously, Omid. Well, I, you know, look, I, I think <laughs> the royal family are brilliant at sort of taking a joke, um, you know, the Queen herself mm -hmm. loves a good joke. I don't know if they'll be tuning into this. I do have some more details, though. Oh, uh, Orlando Bloom is voicing Prince Harry. 
Interesting. Okay. Uh, Meghan Markle is voiced by the actress Condola Richard. Uh, she is known for mm. her sort of Broadway work, but also has starred in uh, TV remakes of Romeo and Juliet and Steel Magnolias. Uh, she's done right. a bunch of stuff. It, it'll be very interesting to see how yeah. this is all going to come together. Um, I think there are some fictional roles in there as well, such as Alan Cumming playing a royal butler. <laughs> so, <laughs> Watch this space. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it, it sort of reminds me of, um, you've seen The Windsors, I assume. I have seen a clip or two, yeah. Yeah, but it reminds me <laughs> they're able to have a reality show that very much um, mimics the royal family. So I guess it's not the first time it's been done. Yeah, well, let us know what you think. I'm curious to know. I think it's always easier when the subject of your joke is an adult and when it's yes, children yes I, agree. I always wonder what what what's the line and what's mm -hmm. acceptable and what isn't i must admit there have been times where i've giggled at gary janetti's instagram post and times where i've cringed mm. because i've just felt that it's perhaps hit the wrong notes um but i don't know listen we'll see and i would love to hear from you guys on this uh you know where to find us at maggie Rooley on twitter at scoby on twitter just use the hashtag the airpod i think that just about wraps us up max oh my gosh well it's been a whirlwind of a week uh omen i always love wrapping it up with you it has been nice to <laughs> just escape the exactly. madness of the past few days even just for half an hour or so but a pleasure as always to do it with you by my side you as well omen. all right guys take care look after yourselves and each other and we'll see you next friday Thank you.